Oh God, we come before you tonight in humility, today in humility, seeking your peace, your love, and your wisdom. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is my uh, third sermon in a three-sermon series on the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And as I mentioned in the Friday email that I send out, uh, this week several of you wrote to me to ask if I would be preaching a third sermon on Joseph or if I would be preaching about what happened in Charlottesville, and the answer is both. Many of you know that it's a practice of mine to follow the lectionary, a cycle of appointed biblical texts for each week. When you follow that cycle, you preach through the entire Bible in roughly three years. I chose this discipline. I continue to choose it because it keeps me from just preaching on my favorite texts in the Bible. And it also keeps me from paging through the Bible looking for stories to reinforce what I already think. Preaching on the text that I am given each week reminds me to look for God's wisdom even when confronted with a difficult situation in the world and look to God's wisdom first. So what might the story of Joseph be saying to us in this week? I found three things to think about. Many of you will remember that last Sunday we talked about the moral ambiguity of this man, Joseph. An oversimplified version of the story of Joseph tells of a young man betrayed by his brothers who trusts God, makes good choices, and ends up as right-hand man to the Pharaoh. But looking closer at the story as we did last week, we saw that this simple version is not necessarily the correct one. On closer examination, Joseph is a deeply troubled adult, still struggling with the sins of his family and his memories from childhood. The very names that he gives to his own children show the complexity of this man. In today's reading, Joseph forgives his brothers for the sins of the past, and the story seems to resolve. But if you go home today and you read chapters 42 through 44 of Genesis, which lead up to the lesson we heard this morning, you will find that over a period of months, probably even years, the embattled Joseph deceives and punishes his brothers as he struggles with his own inner demons and moves slowly toward the moment of forgiveness that finally arrives. And following that reconciliation with his family, he is still a morally questionable leader. Last week I read to you at length from chapter 47, in which we hear the seldom-told conclusion to the Joseph story, in which Joseph, the hero, takes primary responsibility for impoverishing and then enslaving the starving people of Egypt. 
This Joseph we meet in the Bible is no perfect person and is no flawless hero. This situation is a good chance to talk about a principle we should use when we read the Bible. Jesus Christ, the Son of God on earth, is supposed to look better than the rest of us. The fully divine nature that dwells in his human life means that Jesus does this thing of being a human better than the rest of us. We're called to follow Jesus and to be his students, to strive to live more like he did. But we will never make it all the way there. None of us will live up to the standard that Jesus sets, and we don't have to because of the gift of God's grace we receive through Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is about. The other characters in the Bible, all of the other characters in the Bible, do not fit this same profile. David, Paul, Esther, Joseph... These people are in the Bible, but they are followers like we are. Flawed people. They make mistakes and hurt others. They battle against the evil forces in their own lives. They don't always get it right. We are not supposed to follow them as we are supposed to follow Jesus. We are supposed to relate to them. We don't read stories about these other people in the Bible so that they can be moral or spiritual on our behalf. These stories are meant to encourage us to do our own hard work, struggling through life as moral and spiritual people. We should read their stories and we should think if they survived this human predicament and kept on striving, then so must I. So as it applies to the story of Joseph, Joseph may be the protagonist of one of the greatest stories in all of the Bible, but if it sometimes seems to you as if this story has no one-line moral takeaway, well, that's probably true. It is not the intention that you read the Joseph story, watch someone else live perfectly, and then you get off the hook with a simple recipe for moral success. Joseph's story raises moral questions about everything from adultery to money to forgiveness, and you're supposed to ask these questions of yourself. Joseph's story is meant to remind us that we too are moral actors in the world. This is relevant to the world in which we live for any number of reasons. But in the wake of what happened last week in Charlottesville, I think that chief among them may be this. Regardless of the behavior of a group of protesters. And regardless of the response that comes from a president, a politician of either party, or your favorite journalist or favorite pundit, Christian people are responsible for reading 
sacred texts and making our own moral judgments. We'd all love for our elected leaders and for people with the loudest microphones to do the right thing, but many times they do not, and we cannot leave it at that. The church cannot cede the moral authority of our culture to everyone else. We need to be talking to one another here about what it means to be good out there. The Bible has been inviting people into conversations about good and just public behavior from the day that these stories began to be told. As Christian people, we ourselves must take responsibility for asking moral questions. That's the first lesson I take from the Joseph story. The second takeaway has to do with the act of forgiveness that takes place between Joseph and his brothers in today's reading. And it has to do with how Joseph's decision to forgive comes about. For all of Joseph's imperfections, there is a quality of his character that he gets right again and again. Joseph wants to deal with the struggles, the baggage, and the demons in his life. And as a result, he learns how to regulate his feelings and his actions and keep his heart from turning to hate. When Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, he makes the best of being a slave to Potiphar. When Potiphar's wife frames him and the Pharaoh's cupbearer betrays him, Joseph makes the best of life in prison. And when Joseph's brothers come back into his life asking him for help, he finds it in his heart to forgive them. Take note of this. In all of these situations, and especially in reuniting with his brothers, Joseph did not have to speak and behave as well as he does. When Joseph becomes the most powerful man in all of Egypt, he is free to say and do a whole range of vengeful things, but he chooses not to do so. Instead, he forgives them. And in doing that, he frees himself from the grief and the hate that he has been carrying. Joseph acts rightly again and again because he self-regulates his behavior by limiting his freedom. Limiting one's own freedom is a fundamental task of Christian discipleship. Living in the freedom of faith means giving up things. We can rely on God to carry our burdens only when we limit our reliance upon ourselves. We can help other people to live better lives only when we give up some of our own time and our own money. 
We can accept other people rather than hating them, even when we don't have to. And when we do that, we don't have to carry the burden of hate in our hearts. Christian life is full of self-imposed limits that lead to greater freedom. Martin Luther called this the freedom of a Christian. He said the freedom of a Christian is to walk through life feeling as if you are a perfectly free Lord of all because you are a perfectly dutiful servant to all. Christians are free because of what we give up. I believe in the freedom of speech, and I pray for people who abuse that freedom. Both because of the misery it causes to others, and because of the misery it causes for people to walk through their lives carrying the burden of hate. Carrying around hate toward another person or group of people is a terrible burden. And that's a message that is meant for people who intimidate with signs and guns and torches, and it is also relevant for people who choose not to limit their freedom as they hide behind a tweet or a Facebook post. Christians who are truly free have the ability to say many things that they choose not to say. Because we have been set free to live lives of love. Joseph makes that decision time and again in his own life. You can be in favor of free speech and still despise the misuse of that freedom. Christians are people who believe we are most free because of the limits we choose to impose upon ourselves. Finally, as I mentioned to you last week and read at length, Joseph does a wonderful job of freely limiting himself in reference to his own family, but he does not do so in reference to society. His selfish behavior results in the horrible oppression of an entire people of a different race. And that reminds us, as moral actors in our own world, that sometimes stances must be taken in order to limit the progress of evil in the world. In this, these days... Like in any other, it deserves to be said, and to be said without compromise, that there is no place in our culture for white supremacy and anti-Semitism. I think that's something we should all be able to agree on. We've struggled through a world war and a civil rights movement in order to be able to say that and say it safely, and we shouldn't go back there. And regardless of politicians, pundits, or journalists, in these days, church people need to uphold that standard for ourselves. 
I'm too young to have lived through the Holocaust or the Civil Rights Movement, but I have my own much smaller reason for believing that we still need to speak up against racism and hate and do so often. I have my own reason to bring home the point that these things still exist, not just at riots, but in all kinds of harmless-looking places. And so I'm going to tell you a personal story, one that I'm not proud of. When I was in elementary school, I went to an after-school daycare that was diverse. It was at a Jewish community center where there were Jews and Christians, and there were both black kids and white kids. One day I got in a fight with a little boy who was African-American, and I called him the N-word. To this day, I don't know where I learned that word. It could have been on the basketball court or on TV or in a textbook at school, but somehow I knew the word and I knew how to use it. I don't remember what the argument was about with that kid, and I don't remember the sentence I used that contained that word. But I do remember that it was the last time I ever called someone that name because of how hard my parents came down on me for it. And I remember being marched back to the Jewish community center to apologize to that little boy and to his parents, escorted by my parents, who I'm sure were even much more embarrassed than I was. And I tell you that story for a reason that is past and present. I'm not saying to you today that white supremacy is evil because I read about it in an article. I need to take a moral stance on this because one of the worst memories in my life is when I engaged in an act of white supremacy and racial violence. I didn't even know what I was doing, and that doesn't matter. White supremacy and racial violence are real. And it isn't limited to swastikas and torches, It happens on basketball courts, at suburban daycare, and in neighborhoods and office buildings every day. Racism is pervasive in our culture. It sneaks into the lives of young people early in life, and it sticks with us. And its worst and most overt manifestations, like what we saw in Charlottesville, will only be kept at bay if those of us who are moderate, middle-of-the-road people do not ever allow for racism to be normal in any form, anywhere. The church has a bad history when it comes to this. Jim Crow was upheld as gospel truth by countless Christian churches. The Nazi party thrived in Germany because believers who were convinced to call believers were convinced to call themselves 
German Christians. They allowed their nationalism to take precedence over their beliefs of Christian faith. Who knows in what respects Christians might be on the wrong side of history right now? We have to be vigilant, friends. To be sure that no matter how many times we see hatred and bigotry portrayed on the news, in a press conference, or in a rally in our communities, we do not ever allow it to become normal. We must accept our responsibility in the face of this need that is ongoing. The story of Joseph is a story of a morally compromised, sinful man in need of love and in need of forgiveness. He's not perfect, and he does not come to us on a pedestal and preach at us about how we should behave. And likewise, I do not mean to preach at you today about how you should act in these days. I am a sinner. I have engaged in my own acts of injustice in ways I sometimes know and other times do not know. I myself participate in the privileges that come from being white and being Christian. And I'm sure I engage in acts of bias against people who are not. And I invite you to come with me on the journey of never accepting these things as normal or as the way that God wants it to be. When we read a story like the one of Joseph, we should be challenged to ask the same moral questions that he had to ask and to ask them about our own lives so that we can grow in faith and love one another as God loved us first. Amen.